This is The Guardian. Today, it's a condition that two million people across the UK are suffering with. So why are people with long COVID struggling to be believed? Shortness of breath, chronic fatigue, cognitive impairment or neurofatigue. I can't hold things, I can't open things. I can't rub my son's back when I'm putting him to sleep. So initially I couldn't even climb a flight of stairs. Uh, Lots of muscle aches, um, joint pains. How fatigued would you say your legs are? They are exhausted, (laughs) actually really upset. If you've had COVID, you'll probably remember how it feels to be unfathomably tired, struggling for breath, to lose your sense of taste or smell. Those experiences can be scary, but for most of us, they pass within a week or two. For the two million people in this country with long COVID, however, the symptoms are still going on months or even years later. It's depressing, is really what it is. Nobody can really understand or relate to you except somebody else who's had the same problem. From the outside, it's not always clear to see how much people are struggling. A big part of it is this feeling of being believed and validated because you start to think, am I crazy? Am I imagining these things? There are support groups online for people with long COVID whose members number in the tens of thousands. They describe how it feels in words like lonely, debilitating, forgotten. People with long COVID don't know when or whether they'll regain the health they had before. They don't know and doctors can't really tell them either. It's a rite of passage for everybody who has long COVID though. At what point do you realise that you go to your doctor or you go to see a consultant and you know more about your illness than they do? But people are still catching COVID-19. The population's immunity is dropping and the data shows that cases in England are rising again, partially because of a new variant. The number of people developing long COVID is rising too. So far, the focus has been on saving lives in the pandemic, but COVID is leaving a bitter legacy for many that may stay with them for months or even years. In a society that's been changed forever by this disease, it's just not going to be possible for us all to get back to normal. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the struggle to understand and live with long COVID. So my name is Leslie McNiven. I'm 54 years old and feeling considerably older. I um, am I'm based up in Edinburgh. Tell me, how are you feeling today? Um, I had a really good day yesterday. And so today it kind of is a bit of a roller coaster. You tend to go in cycles. So today I'm a little bit 
more brain fogged and a little bit more careful when I'm speaking to try and make sure that I'm making sense. Um, but I'm really happy to be doing something purposeful. Thanks so much for speaking to me, Leslie. When was it that you caught COVID? So I first came down with symptoms of COVID on the 17th of March, which was days before the UK went into lockdown. And thought, fine, I'll get this out of the way. It'll be a couple of weeks of not feeling so great. And then I can help out other people because I'll be immune because I've had it and got over it. And sadly, life didn't pan out quite as straightforwardly as I'd hoped. Right. So that was over two years ago. When did you realise that you weren't getting better in the way that you expected to? So I think it was around June. So, you know, things that I would have previously done quite happily like public speaking um I remember being quite exhausting um and it's it's weird your body just doesn't seem to respond the way you expect it to and you have these weird tremors and aches and pains and you know it's not simply just feeling a bit tired which unfortunately fatigue can sound that way it's much more about your body is just telling you I can't do this and you're th- you're saying to your body can you please get me up to get a glass of water and your body's saying no <laughs> I really don't want to do that. Have you been getting any treatment for Covid? Resting for me is the main treatment so what I've learned is what depletes my energy and what renews my energy. The physical symptoms, what kinds of tasks were they stopping you from doing? I mean, were were you quite physically active before you got COVID? I was pretty active for my age. I'm pretty fit. Loved to be doing things with my active children. Um, I definitely don't feel that now. The, The kind of things that I'm not able to do now are drive for a distance without feeling extremely tired um, to walk up any kind of incline to stand for even more than 30 seconds I can start to feel my heart rate changing thank goodness for me personally that a lot of the brain fog has eased over the two-year period when I've been trying different things to try and get my brain back in gear because as a writer and avid reader not being able to focus and do that um in the way I had prior to COVID was really frustrating. So I started doing creative writing and reading poetry as a way to try and get back into things in a more manageable way. It's it's very much felt like long COVID was an invisible second pandemic and we are trying to wave at the people who can help and, and throwing out distress signals and hoping someone will come and rescue us and it feels sometimes as if we are bobbing about in the water wearing a life jacket and we can see a boat coming towards us and then it turns around and it sails off in the opposite direction again and therefore being able to just um, I suppose channel some of the emotions can help us to make sense of what's happening to us. Linda Geddes, you're a science correspondent for The Guardian. We've just heard from Leslie about how it feels to be living with long COVID. From a medical and scientific point of view, what exactly is this condition? Well, I think I think still no one really knows what, what the cause is. And, and really, long COVID, or sometimes referred to as post-COVID syndrome, is a kind of umbrella description for this constellation of symptoms that seem to be striking 
a subset of people who've recovered from COVID. So, you know, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, defines post-COVID as signs and symptoms that continue for more than 12 weeks after you've had an initial COVID diagnosis. But there's, you know, there's something like 200 symptoms have been documented affecting people who are recovering from COVID and they Gosh. they seem to fall into different camps. So long COVID is probably an umbrella for maybe four or five or six different actual syndromes that are happening here. Some people seem to have more kind of brain-based symptoms, things like brain fog, the kind of ongoing smell problems, headaches. Others are more affected by things like breathlessness. Um, there are other people who are more affected by a kind of relapsing, remitting kind of fatigue, which is much more kind of like chronic fatigue or, or ME. Um, so it's it's really variable between different people. Um, and And so that makes it very difficult for scientists and doctors to really know what they're dealing with. How many people in the UK are suffering with it? Well, the latest figures from the Office for National Statistics suggest that there's about 2 million people in the UK, um, which is roughly 3% of the population, who reported that they were still experiencing COVID symptoms for more than four weeks after they first got COVID, um, which is the highest figure since the official surveys began. Um, Like me personally, I had COVID, I had the Delta variant exactly a year ago, and I am still suffering from this weird smell distortion, this thing called parosmia, where certain certain odours smell really foul to me that should smell perfectly nice. Um, what kinds of things? Uh, things like, it's particularly things like laundry detergent and perfumes. <laughs> like my favourite perfume smells absolutely revolting. And I'm really hoping that at some point that's not going to be the case. But, you know, people's deodorants, if I go into a, if I go into a pub, I can't, I can't stand the smell of other people. I can't stand the smell of groups of people. They, it's, there's something about, you know, people who've kind of got dressed up for the night and put on some aftershave and deodorant oh. <laughs> smell absolutely foul. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily define myself as having long COVID. But, you know, then there are obviously quite a lot of people who are experiencing debilitating symptoms, which are just going on and on and on. And people are having to self-identify. There's no... You know, you wouldn't go to the doctor and be defined as having long COVID. Well, yeah, I mean, so so the doctor will define you as having long COVID or post-COVID syndrome if you've been experiencing symptoms for more than three months. But it's still a very kind of woolly definition and that makes it really difficult. And the other thing is that, you know... <laughs> The, although it's 2 million people at the moment, quite a lot of people are still getting COVID and a proportion of them are going to develop long COVID. So we don't still don't know how many people ultimately are going to be affected by this. How does that break down across the population? Are there some groups of people who are more likely than others to develop long COVID? There are. There, it tends to be people of working age, mostly. They're more likely to be women the kind of average age where it strikes is between about 35 and 69. And they seem to be disproportionately working in a lot of the jobs that got us through the pandemic, things like teaching, um, hospital staff, social care workers. And on average, there's more of these people living in the most deprived parts of the country. There are also children affected. But yeah, I mean, it strikes people across the spectrum. 
Are there any theories about why women would be more affected? Uh, it could be something to do with something to do with estrogen levels, but doctors don't really know. Women also tend to be more affected by autoimmune diseases, and it's quite possible and quite likely that a certain proportion of people with long COVID have some sort of autoimmune thing going on in their bodies where the body's immune cells have, have started attacking its its own tissues. But that's probably not going to explain everyone's long COVID. Sounds like a massive challenge for healthcare professionals. I mean, if we've got 2 million people across the country struggling with these symptoms, how is the healthcare service coping with that? Well, you know, there have been this network of long COVID clinics set up across the country, but there's basically too few of them to handle the massively soaring demand for help and treatment. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of people still on waiting lists for treatment, people reporting that when they get to the long COVID clinics, they're not actually being helped in the way they thought they would. So they, you know, they might be given some kind of x-rays, blood tests, various scans. And then when when they come back without any obvious damage, they're, they're kind of sent on their way with maybe some advice about progressively starting to do more movement and exercise, which may be quite helpful, but um, it's not necessarily what people were hoping for. And the real problem here is that no one really knows what to do about these people and how, how best to help them at at the current time. The Royal College of Nursing the other day claimed that existing services are woefully inadequate to meet the level of demand. And they pointed out that diagnosis and treatment massively varies across the UK. In some clinics, it's being treated as a physical condition and in others, it's being predominantly treated as a psychological condition. So I think that probably what patients would like to see is a bit more consistency in the advice and guidelines that are given to try and at least even out the way patients are treated. Leslie, you help run a support group for people suffering with long COVID. Who's in that? I um, co-founded Long COVID Scotland when it became obvious that we had to do lobbying north of the border as well as to the UK Westminster government. We're finding the people that are sort of coming through from our 53,000 strong um, support group users. There are 53,000 people who are needing this support group. Yeah. In long COVID support, we started off with nothing, went to 100, went to 1,000, and it's been going up and up and up consistently every single month since we started. And those are people who are saying, I'm, I'm not getting the support or enough support and, you know, having to come to a voluntary organisation. Yeah, we basically um, came together because there was a need that was unmet because we were in a crisis mode. And that need is still not being met by the authorities. And it's been described by one of my colleagues as sort of interior design when the, the fabric of the building is such that it's actually been condemned. And what we are really keen is that we get to the root causes where we can And you run it online, which means that people from all over the country can join. Can you tell me about some of the things that people have posted in the group? 
Sure. I mean, an almost universal thing you see from people is just gratitude and relief and, you know, tears that, oh my goodness, I didn't realise it wasn't just me. I've seen in the group in maybe six months ago, people who were have been ill since the first wave and have only just discovered the group and realised that all the issues they've had are actually a condition called long COVID and there is something that they can maybe do to help themselves. But also dealing with a condition that you don't understand that at its worst, people don't believe is actually real. Um, And that level of gaslighting and discrimination and stigma that people have experienced has been an incredibly hurtful part of this experience. So people are being made to feel that the condition that they're living through isn't real and they're coming to the group to some extent for validation. Yeah, what, what is common is just this feeling of such a contrast between what is available publicly and when you look on NHS websites and what you actually discover. It's like opening Pandora's box and a big part of it is this feeling of being believed and validated that we've touched on because we, you start to think, am I crazy? Am I imagining these things? You know, I, I am convinced that we have saved lives. You know, we would have lost a lot more people um, and I, I've do have a fear if we can't make real change happen, we will lose people because there are people posting on a regular basis saying, what's the point? Yeah, and I mean, I guess on an individual level, in the very first instance, even being able to go to a healthcare professional and have them say, I believe you and I'm listening is kind of like the first step towards, as you say, a whole kind of holistic approach for that person's life and in terms of their being able to try and live a so-called normal life this condition must be having a big impact on some people's ability to work as well unfortunately it feels as though the push to get us back into the office and media articles saying you know rebellious workers are being difficult about coming back to the office Um, And when it comes to working, I can still work, but I have to be sat at a desk and I have to have breaks. And I think that's a bit of a barrier to people going back to work um, as they were before COVID, because we know that we have ups and downs and we're not consistent. And what we are finding is a lot of people trying to return to work very quickly end up back off again because the the step from recovering at home to going back to your job is such a massive one that it can only really happen over a longer time period with that kind of level of flexibility. And, you know, workplaces aren't necessarily geared up for that, particularly if there's this mindset of getting people back into the nine to five and into the office and so forth. That doesn't help. Leslie, we probably all know at least one person who has long COVID and The symptoms might not be, from the outside, very clear. What should we understand? I mean, what advice would you give us all on how to support somebody in our own lives who's living with this condition? I think that's a really excellent question because I think it's recognising in the first instance that what you see is only a very small tip of the iceberg and there's a lot happening under the surface. So it's like you say about healthcare practitioners just believing and validating 
having that kind of reaction echoed by family as well, which is where the media and, and programmes like these are really helpful because this actually happened. There was coverage in the Sunday papers just at the weekend there and, and people were messaging saying, my family have come to me and said, oh my goodness, I believe you now, pretty much, um, because they read it in the paper. And and that's really un- an unfortunate aspect of human nature is that we we tend to be quite ableist and we tend to disbelieve um, things that we can't see. It's, you know, if you have a broken leg, that's obvious. If it's something that's happening internally, whether it's mental health, but there's elements of stigma attached to it in the same way that it was attached to mental health and that is now gradually changing. But largely it's just about helping the person feel that they're in charge of their own body and they, they have an element of influence and control over what will happen to them. Coming up, how well equipped is our healthcare service to help people living with this condition? Hello, this is Max Rushton from the Guardian Football Weekly. I hope you're enjoying your other Guardian pod. And look, you've read 58 articles now and you're still not contributing. So why not come to our live tour? Uh, We're in Leeds on the 13th of June, Birmingham on the 15th, Manchester on the 19th, Glasgow on the 13th of July. The panellists are brilliant. Uh, Me and Barry are getting away with it, but they're really fun occasions and uh, we'd love you to come. A few tickets remaining for some, lots of tickets remaining for others, no tickets remaining for others. Don't know why, that's just we're popular in Dublin and not in Birmingham. But please come along, myticket.co.uk. Uh, you can get your tickets at myticket.co.uk. Linda, what are scientists doing around the world to understand how long COVID operates and how it might be treated? There's been quite a lot of work done in the UK, which has involved looking at organ damage caused by COVID infection. And this seems to be suggesting that, you know, there are some, in some patients, there are some physical damage to organs, things like kind of tiny microclots in the lungs and in some of the other organs, which might be contributing to stuff like breathlessness. There's also a, quite a lot of research looking at autoimmunity, there's a possibility that either the virus is leaving something behind on some of our cells, which is causing the immune system to attack those tissues, or there may even be bits of virus kind of lurking about in certain places in the body that the immune system is less able to get into. And it's possible that that is causing kind of persistent inflammation, which is contributing to people's symptoms. But I think it's going to take years to really understand What's going on? Are you less likely to develop long COVID if you've been vaccinated? Yes, you are, but it's not 100% protection. And there is some indication that if you have already got long COVID and you then get vaccinated, that that does seem to help in some people. And maybe if there is some sort of residual virus loitering somewhere in the body, that, that vaccination might provide a kind of 
a push to the immune system to to sort itself out and, and clear that infection. But then there seem to be other people who have long COVID who get vaccinated and, and it doesn't help or in, in a few cases seems to make it a little bit worse. But on the whole, vaccination seems to be a good approach to definitely prevent it and, and maybe help treat it as well. The NHS obviously recognises long COVID as a serious problem, but it sounds like the resources aren't there for everybody who needs help with the symptoms of it. What would an effective healthcare system be to deal with the effects of long COVID across the country? Some of the more successful clinics are ones where they have got experts from multiple disciplines all working together. So, you know, you you might have someone who's an expert in in lungs, also a cardiology person who knows all about the heart, people who know about autoimmune disease, all working together in the same place alongside physiotherapists and nurses and so on. But, you know, all those people are really busy trying to treat the backlog of patients who've become ill with other conditions over the past two years. And, and you know, people are leaving the NHS because um, because it's just been such hard work. And so I think what patients are crying out for is, is more kind of support and advice about what they can do to manage their condition. What we're talking about is a public health crisis, one that's not very well understood and that could last for years to come. What is the government doing to help? Yeah, I mean, there are, there is some work going on to try and deal with this. It's not like the government's completely dismissing it and saying we're not going to do anything. Um, Leila Moran, who's the chairwoman of the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus, has said that, you know, their group has been warning the government about the scale and dangers of, of long COVID for nearly two years now. And in every single time we've done it, we've tried to raise their voices but it's huge numbers of people. So when you have something as debilitating as this for more than 12 months, you are looking at that point at it being classed as a disability. And it's really significant for the workforce and the country as a whole. And there's about 400,000 people who are no longer working because of health factors relating to the pandemic. So the government does have to do something to address this because... Otherwise, that number of people not being able to work is going to have an impact on the economy. It's particularly going to affect areas like um, teachers and the NHS, where there's a disproportionate number of people in those sectors who are living with long COVID. So, you know, it is on some politicians' agenda, but I think they need to do more in the coming months and years to really get ahead of this and tackle it. Thank you to Linda Geddes. You can read her latest piece about the new variants and subvariants of COVID at theguardian.com. Thanks also to Leslie McNiven. If you're interested in joining the support group that Leslie helps run for people with long COVID, go to longcovid.org or search for Long COVID Support on Twitter or Facebook. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and sound designed by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian. The Guardian.